This is 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape, where we ask leading architects, urbanists, designers and thinkers to reflect on the ideas, inspirations and interests that shape their practice and their views on the present and future of architecture and cities. It's 20 questions in 20 minutes with me, Owen Hopkins. Can you begin by telling us who you are, what you do, and what you're currently working on? My name is Adam Nathaniel Furman. I'm an artist and designer um, who comes from an architectural background. And I'm currently working on a range of things from a vase uh, to a master plan uh, to a house extension. When did you know you wanted to become an architect or, or a designer or, or do what you do now? How did you get into it? What was your route? At the very, at the very, very beginning, I was just one of those. I think this is relatively common with people who like architecture. I was just one of those kids who was like really into architecture naturally from a very early age. I would just walk around in the streets and just literally look up the whole time and notice things. And I, it was just like a kind of world that belonged a little bit to me these things that were silent but like super interesting and that I could ask lots of annoying questions about to the ad to the adults and I think I liked them just as much as I love maps which were similarly things that belonged to me that had like hidden world in them uh, that were silent so from very 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 young age I didn't have the right A-levels though and actually went to do foundation course at St Martin's for fine art but luckily as is very often the case I think with some people like my life was punctuated with really amazing teachers. And I ended up doing a spatial design unit in the foundation course there, which was run by Saskia, who basically picked me up and was like, look, you love architecture. I'm going to help you have confidence, do a project that's going to help you put together a portfolio and then do UCAS. And because of her, because of like her amazing teaching and confidence boosting, I ended up going to study, to study architecture rather than I don't know, doing conceptual sculptures of using pig's, pig's hearts, which is what I was doing at the time. You're known for your colourful, highly decorated designs. And I wanted to ask where your love of those things comes from. What, what drives you to create things like that? I guess, I guess multiple areas. But initially, there is, a, there is a predisposition that I have towards things which are decorated and colorful and saturated and what might be considered over the top or kitsch. And that's, that is very much a function of my, of my background initially, right? The kind of predisposition towards them. First of all, coming from a family of immigrants from elsewhere who come from different um, aesthetic traditions, who can kind of constructed their own identity themselves, which is the, which is the kind of what, the kind of environment that I grew up in at home where objects and things were very, very meaningful and important. And, very often highly elaborate things. And then growing up as a sort of queer kid in London in the 90s, the, you know, the subcultural scenes that I was part of, aesthetics were hugely important as, as mediums of expression, of identity expression, through clubs, through posters, through graphics, through events. Everything was always embodied visually. And so that's something that kind of came with me to when I went to architecture school. And um, there was a journey through that very much of studying the academic context and background and history of these things, which is very, very interesting to me, how that relates to a kind of alternative historiography of architecture, which is very often queer and feminist. But then also just for myself, that there's a kind of really wonderful and enjoyable world which is beyond what might be considered the kind of very serious diagrammatic, programmatic aspects or structural aspects of architecture, which, which kind of have intersections with the, with the history of fine art, crafts, objects, 
and decoration. And it's the kind of bringing together of those with architecture in relation to ideas of identity expression, which became my, which became my passion throughout university and has very much continued in various ways after that as well and, and tends to become embodied in different projects, different scales and in different materials, but always with the same exuberance and love of kind of visual embodiment and expression in a very kind of like over the top, I guess it might be seen as way that was already present in work that I was doing when I was in high school a bit, just more sophisticated, hopefully. I've got more questions about design, but I, I just wanted to kind of jump ahead to one I was going to ask a little bit later on. But you're also known for your sort of advocacy, your promotion of postmodernism and the amazing Twitter threads that you have on late modernism, one on 1990s Japanese architecture. This is not really fashionable stuff, I think it's fair to say, but you've brought it back to attention. And it seems to me that there's this mission that you have of, of trying to bring attention to the, to the overlooked, the downplayed, the things that have been excluded somehow from, from the kind of official histories. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily intentional. It's just from the very first time I came across architectural architecture school, I had to consistently and always justify the references that I had and the things that I was producing in a way that others didn't because what they were doing was just accepted as being good. And that meant that in a way I became quite forceful about, or full of pride, I guess, <laughs> in, a, in, a very, in a very effusive and forceful way about the things which I appreciated and liked, which very often, I guess, from some people on the outside looks like had of been contrarian, right? that actually these are things that I really like. And they, what they tend to be, and the things that I tend to be drawn to, which is very much, again, a product of my background, but also my interests, which in turn have derived very, off, very much from my background, are things which are considered freakish, hybrid, over the top, unusual, unclassifiable. And so, you know, I'm drawn, you know, I'm very interested in like the history of queer design and, feminism in relation to space, but th that's absolutely not the defining characteristic that draws me to things. It's actually the characteristic of them visually and in the way that they're made being outside of the norm to a relative extre relatively extreme degree. And that I used to have a Tumblr and a spreadsheet uh, where I would find really intriguing movements or efflorescences of unusual types of design and architecture around the world over the past kind of few decades. And I would, on that Tumblr, I would put them up or I would like, I have a folder on my computer. I've stopped doing this a while ago because it very often, and actually a lot of, a lot of the, the function of the kind of my, my sort of research was very often to just not feel alone, um, to feel like I had a little bit like buildings used to make me feel like I could talk to them, right? And they were my friends. These alternative well, I, I, people refer to them as alternative, but for me, they're just re these references that I found really interesting and intriguing uh, made me feel like I had backup. <laughs> you know, that like I wasn't alone. I had friends that what I was doing was not completely bonkers, that the things I liked to design actually did have a, a history to them in a way. It was just a, a disconnected history that wasn't canonized in academic texts or in the schools that I was being taught in. So in a way it was like, yeah, it was like constructing my own academy <laughs> a little bit. And that, that tendency has, that began at the beginning of university already. And it just continued. And I, I guess all that happened on social media was already like 10 years ago when I, when I joined social media was that I just started to share that 
initially to much ridicule and recently to the opposite actually people just finding them very interesting which is really nice but also fashions have changed and that horrible thing has happened to me where I work that I liked doing briefly became fashionable which was an unpleasant experience. <laughs> You're not alone anymore amongst designers who who work in bright colours and pattern and decoration. No, not at all. No, and you, and you coined the phrase New London Fabulous to describe the group of designers working in, in London that are part of this broader trend. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about New London Fabulous and, and what, how you see it unfolding? That came from an interview uh, in a very sort of impromptu manner. <laughs> it just was really part of a conversation. Was it in Dazine? It was Dazine, yeah. And, Mar you know, Marcus was asking me questions and, and he was basically saying, where have you come from? Have you, have you come out of no, you know, nowhere? Do you have any? And, and I, I, I very much, the way I think of myself is a product of my circumstances, uh, of my background, of my experiences, of my teachers. Like, I, I do very much think of myself as a contextual being in a way. And it's just been a matter of like how that I've, how I've digested my context. And so I didn't want to come across as saying like, oh, I'm ex nihilo, which people say. <laughs> I have an old boss who would very much say that, but he wasn't. And so I was just trying to situate myself, I guess, within also an environment in London where I have been making these things for the past 30 years, but also there are other people who have been getting prominence or becoming prominent uh, in a way that I'd love to be, but becoming prominent over the past few years who are also working not in the same way, but in a, in a very... In a, in, a, in a very exuberant and extreme fashion using visual culture to, I think, express a sort of ebullience and rejection of sameness and conformity that very much chimes with, I think, the moment that London finds itself in, which is why it's been picked up by the media and why they're getting lots of commissions. And, you know, I just feel like perhaps these pressures and these, the circumstances and the environment that fed into me doing those things was actually similar for lots of other people, obviously also with us influencing each other. So, uh, and then I, you know, he, I, I thought New London Vernacular, which is the name for the really boring architecture that's been produced over the past 15 years in London. And then that went through my head and I went, well, what the hell? New London Fabulous. Because <laughs> it's not vernacular. It's, you know, it's the opposite of vernacular because actually London is the opposite of vernacular because vernacular is all about what came before and what existed and what's what's natural in a particular area and the local and the context. And actually London's all about the new and the thing, the, the hybrid and the people coming from different places and new connections. And yes, the history, but it's always updating and changing and people who are not defined by one thing that can create themselves. And, you know, it's an incredible place of constant change. It's kind of the opposite of vernacular. So, so I don't know, I just thought New London fabulous. And I think it's a it's very particular and interesting context that, that these people and myself have come up in also, which does relate interestingly to social media, which you, you mentioned before, and also the kind of design economy of London, where we have all these pop-ups and uh, design events, festivals, which are very often uh, commissioned, yes, okay, by curators, but very often also there's marketing people involved. Like a lot of these things are actually done commercially. And a lot of these things are, are very often the people who they commission are very often found on social media. So people like myself who would have never been celebrated by the usual gatekeepers in the mainstream media, I hate using that word, the gatekeepers in traditional media, found a following, right? Not being alone, found people to be with on social media, got a following and got noticed by not an academic group of people who know what they like because it's defined by 
the environment of the academy, which likes very set specific things, but actually have a much more open mind because they're not trained, see something that's popular and is doing well on social media, and they'll commission that for very prominent artworks in the city in a way that has never happened before. And that's only possible because of the incredible design economy that kind of evolved in London over the couple of decades. You combine that with people growing up very much, you know, very often, you know, the kids of immigrants who are very often mixed, who are finally making into the design world after many decades of it being kind of quite a uniform environment, getting social media followings, producing work that would not be accepted by the kind of men in turtlenecks in the, in, you know, in the academy, being found by these marketing people, producing stuff that then explodes on social media again in the public realm, and it kind of feeds itself. And there's actually, there's varying degrees of this in other cities in the world, but just the scale of the industry in London meant this happened, was catalyzed to a much greater degree. How do you feel about the fact that I think almost all of these projects are temporary or, or kind of meanwhile use? Because it always seems to me that there's the temporary thing. It kind of makes it OK that it's OK to do these big, bright, bold, outlandish things because, you know, in a few months it'll be gone and we'll revert back to, you know, much more staid environment. It's great that these things are happening, but at the same time sort of betray a lack of confidence that we're not prepared to commission these things to be actually permanent or for them to kind of exist at the scale of buildings as opposed to interventions in public spaces for example yeah definitely I mean it I, I can I can only speak for myself but for instance for me like there's also an aesthetic that has come from the fact that I've only or that I've unfortunately been getting these only these temporary commissions because the budget's low the materials that you get to use over a certain quality the colors are of us have a certain garishness to them that I wouldn't necessarily actually like to use and actually I would very much very much like to work in materials which are more permanent, which have a greater level of subtlety to them, uh, which embed into the physical fabric in a very different way in the city. Um, but it's not been possible. I guess the way I see it is a little bit, first of all, it's very good because if those hadn't, hadn't, hadn't have happened, right? There's a lot of designers that wouldn't have been able to garner attention, wouldn't have been able to have what are now the beginnings of possibly very interesting careers, right? So they, they served a purpose, but at the same time, I do think that they're a little bit of a cop-out in the sense that our city, if anything, has been coming more and more uniform, you know, with the new guidance that's coming out on the, the government published something which was saying that effectively that local, local areas could automatically not give permission to, to a project if it didn't fit into the context, uh, you know, if it wasn't in keeping. And if anything, that tendency has been getting stronger and stronger. And actually the permanent physical fabric of the, our cities reflect the diversity of them probably less than they ever have, you know, and it's not exactly like they cater for them in, in functional ways, the way that perhaps they did in the 60s, either in a more egalitarian, egalitarian way. So it's kind of like hyper unequal, but actually also hyper unsymbolically representative. So it's a little bit like pride, you know, architecture officers will pay to do a float in pride and like, yay, we're also inclusive and fantastic, as long as it's contained in the city and in the profession in one day and expressed on that one day. But God forbid any architect was actually trying to design in a much in an aesthetic that was extremely different from that which was accepted as being contextual or of a good academic quality by the profession. God forbid, that would simply not be allowed. So I think it's a cop-out. It's a little bit like we compartmentalize the diversity and the physical, the shared physical space of our cities into temporary, temporary events and temporary buildings, which I guess indicate a level of inclusivity, but don't commit to them in a, on a symbolic level in a way that would happen if our buildings, our actual physical spaces were very diverse. 
I also think the architects and the public would be more open to an approach which was along those lines architecturally, because also the quality would be different if these things were built permanently. We're talking in the midst of the third national lockdown in the UK. And by this point, the, the economic and knock-on sort of urban implications of lockdown are, are becoming very apparent. And the big story at the moment is the sort of devastation of the high street. You know, I sort of think, well, the big urban challenge of, in Western cities in the 1980s and 1990s was what to do with the post-industrial areas and it seems that the, the challenge now for the the 2020s and probably the 2030s is what we do with the post retail areas and linking back to your brief mention of postmodernism because that as a as a movement or or as a style for want of a better description was in many places and particularly in London very important to not just regenerating but kind of rebranding those former industrial spaces and I, I'm sort of wondering, do we need an equivalent approach for those post-retail spaces? And do you have a sense of what, what that might be? Does some of the things that you've been talking about perhaps point to a way forward? Well, I mean, the first thing that should happen should be an international agreement to tax the hell out of the internet giants and then use that to reduce business rates to almost nothing and fund the fund councils through that. So I think that's honestly the most fundamental change that needs to happen because the way that we're going, business rates are not going to fund the councils. There's a huge shortfall and taxes just disappeared because all of the spending has gone into the, uh, the internet giants. So that's, that's on a, on a you know, national, international level. In terms of design, <laughs> it's a difficult one to answer because I, I guess my spirit is the kind of, I guess, the capitalism of the very small business owner. That's, I guess, what aligns possibly the, the most with the way that I like to imagine cities happening. The small business owner in the community group and the small scale economy. And that's something that could be possible, for instance, if, if rents equaled out and rates were lowered um, and spaces became very affordable to take over. And if that would be combined with the opposite of where we were going, where, you know, there was a kind of movement for high streets, you know, people complaining about clutter and people complaining about visual clutter and visual difference. And, you know, people in expensive areas with the business improvement district wanting everyone to hand paint signs, you know, no neon, you know, no backlit sign, you know, everything turning into a kind of pharaoh and ball, bizarre, nostalgic, middle-class wasteland that's all totally uniform. If we, if we go to the very opposite of that and actually celebrate whatever people want to do, really, as long as it's inclusive, as long as it's accessible, as long as it's safe, I think there could be a really exciting situation where we end up with this, the, these high streets becoming kind of breeding grounds or petri dishes for very small scale rebirth and regrowth. And I think visually that, you know, coming, I guess, coming back to postmodernism might be something along the lines of, you know, Main Street's a bit all right or whatever Denise Scott Brown and, and Robert Venturi said, but they, they said it in a kind of almost like it's almost all right, but actually I think it would be brilliant. Right. <laughs> and it's a kind of, the, the, it's almost a kind of a little bit of the Victorian spirit of our cities where we had devolved power into the municipality, which is very powerful, but then also very small scale landowners rather than sort of giant landowners and giant corporations of people building things with a great amount of pride at a very, very small scale. 
microfinancing and these sort of very vibrant ecologies, business ecologies happening in the cities, which, are, which then naturally is expressed visually um, and aesthetically. And these days would be, would be extremely diverse in terms of like the cultural content of those aesthetics because of the nature of our population has changed. The mixture of our population has changed. And that's, I mean, speaking of Japan in the, in the 80s, that's, the 90s was kind of the, the kind of hangover, but there were sort of extreme bad things that were going on there. But the reason that there was a lot of visual diversity, sort of aesthetic diversity and architectural invention going on there was, yes, there were giant corporations, but actually the main cities there have a lot of um, micro land ownership. So you have tiny, tiny little plots of land with their own businesses and own houses and people with not very large amounts of money, but they were doing okay. They would build their own building and they would do it however the hell they wanted because there was no definition of how you should build your building apart from codes. And that's why we ended up with the most incredible body of work uh, of architectural production over those sort of 20 years. And, and you know, it could be very, it very possibly could happen with us. But yeah, if, if business rates remain as they are, and uh, our tax base keeps declining because our money goes to uh, California, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I hope you're going to kind of come to a kind of really positive crescendo. Oh, sorry. Um... <laughs> no, 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 it will happen. No, I, I, actually, to be honest, I, actually, to be honest, there is a lot of very positive things to, to look forward to on that, on that sort of international front, because obviously we've got Biden now and you know, there will there will probably be some kind of tax agreement. Well, thank you. We do like to end these on a positive <laughs> note if we can. So Adam Nathaniel Furman, thank you very much. You've been listening to 20 by 20, a podcast from Newcastle University's School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. Stay tuned for more episodes, write a review or give us a rating and be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform.